Well, what if I could give you a stock tip that wouldn't fail? Maybe identify the next Microsoft or Google or Apple or Tesla. Well, I don't have a tip like that for you today, so don't get too excited. But a couple, a couple of years ago, there was a whole GameStop thing. I don't know if you remember this, and my household kind of participated in that. There was a lot of speculation around the stock, and one of my sons follows these things. And so he got in early before a lot of people did, and he was really smart about how he did it. He made, uh, he made some money on it. Now, me, I got in late. I only invested a little, and I got out early, so I lost money. So don't come to me for investment advice. Now, I don't have a stock tip, tip for you today, <clears throat> excuse me, but I am going to give you some investment advice that can't fail. Well, it's not really me, but it's Jesus. You see, Jesus talked a lot about money and possessions, and sometimes I've heard people say that Jesus talked about money more than anything else. So I wanted to dive in and see if that was true, and I did a little survey of the New Testament, kind of just moving through all the books of the New Testament, and there's over 50 passages in the New Testament that address this topic of money. But I wouldn't say it's the thing that Jesus talks the most about. But again, the Bible talks about it a lot. There's over 2,300 verses in the Bible total. So I'm not going to be able to cover that all today. You can be thankful for that. But I am going to cover the heart of it, and I'm going to start where Jesus starts started. So if you would, grab a Bible, load up a Bible. We're going to jump into Luke chapter 12. And if you hold your place in there, if you're using one of our Bibles, it's on page 865. And I want to give you a little bit of context before we dive into what Jesus had to say about money. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about what Jesus talked about more than money, his core message. He talked about the kingdom of God and, and sometimes it was called the kingdom of heaven. You'll see it referred to both places. And it's the kingdom of God is where God's love reigns, where peace and justice and harmony between people rule. And I think sometimes this is a challenging concept to wrap our mind around. And I had a friend share a video with me this week from the Bible Project. And, and in that video was this image that shows um, heaven and earth. And we tend to think of the heaven and earth as two separate places, but when God created our world, they actually overlap. And then sin entered the world, and they became separate. And part of God's plan to restore all things is to bring his rule and his reign back here to earth. And ultimately, Jesus' death and resurrection is the one that made that possible, but he invites us into that restoration and this is why he taught his disciples to pray this in Matthew chapter 6 he said may your kingdom come may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven Jesus wanted his disciples to step into bringing his kingdom here on earth now that was a very quick overview about the kingdom of heaven here's your homework in the Grace Fisher's uh, sermon notes under additional resources there's a link to that uh, Bible Project video, I would encourage you to go watch that this week. It's great to watch with your kids. But since Jesus didn't have YouTube and he didn't have the Bible Project, he had to go old school and he preached a message. In fact, Jesus' most famous message 
was titled The Sermon on the Mount, and it's captured in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, we're not going to jump over there, but in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is painting a picture of what this kingdom life looks like here on earth. And he talks about all kinds of things. He talks about relationships and sex, and he talks about enemies. And then he does the same thing and talks about money and possessions. And he starts with the very heart of what we believe about those things. Because you see, Jesus understands if we want to change our behavior, we have to start at the core of what we believe about those things. Um, a writer, Neil Anderson, said this in his book, The Bondage Breaker. All behavior is the product of what we choose to think or believe. Trying to change behavior without changing what we believe and therefore think will never produce any lasting results. And so we have to start with what we believe and get to the heart of it if we want to change how we live our life on any topic. So now to Luke 12. Now, Jesus teaches a lot of things in this passage that he covered in the Sermon on the Mount, but it's just a little bit longer discussion about money. And the setting for this is Jesus, like he often does, he's teaching to the crowds, and somebody in the crowd shouts out a question related to his inheritance. And Jesus doesn't answer his question, but he does tell the crowd this. He says, beware and guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. You see, they lived in a world that saw financial success as a sign of God's blessing. There was significance in how many crops you had or how many animals you owned, the kind of clothes you wore, the kind of house you had. In a lot of ways, things haven't changed much in 2,000 years. Our world isn't a whole lot different than theirs. And so Jesus warns them and he warns us against getting our sense of success or significance from what we have. And then Jesus goes on to tell a story about a rich man who was blessed with an abundance and the man's focus was on storing up what he have. And it's apparent from the way Jesus tells the story is the man is most concerned about his comfort. But then the man suddenly dies and God calls the man a fool. And then Jesus adds this note. He says, yes, a person is, the fool, is a fool to store up earthly wealth but not have a rich relationship with God. You see, Jesus wants to shatter the lie that money will bring us success and significance and that it'll bring us security. And then what we see Jesus do next is what he often does. He'll teach to the crowds, but then privately he'll turn to his disciples and he'll give them a little bit more detail and fill them in on what he says. And so turning to his disciples, Jesus said, that is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food to eat or enough clothes to wear, for life is more than food and your body more than clothing. Look at the ravens. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for God feeds them, and you are more valuable to him than any birds. Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And if worry can't accomplish a little thing like that, then what's the use of worrying over bigger things? Look at the lilies and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, and yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for the flowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? And don't be concerned about what to eat and what to drink, 
don't worry about such things. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers all over the world, but your Father already knows your needs. You see, Jesus in this passage five times in five different ways says, don't worry. He says, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. Now, when we think about who Jesus is talking to, he's talking to a mostly poor group of manual laborers, both his disciples and the crowd that was probably straining to hear what he said to his disciples. Most of them would have probably had one garment and maybe an extra. Jesus is talking to them about the very basics of life, not some of the things that we worry about. But interestingly, even though we have more, many of us worry about the very same things. In fact, I read a stat this week that said over 50% of Americans said their worry about money is negatively affecting their mental health. Now, Jesus told them not worry, but if you look closely at the passage, what he really is saying, he's saying, don't worry, trust God. In fact, he uses the image of God as father, one who cares for his children and knows what they need and promises to provide that. And he contrasts God's care and says God cares for the birds and he, and he clothes the flowers. And you are so much more valuable as his children than they are. You see, Jesus wants us to understand that we serve a generous God, a God who wants to care for you And he wants to bless you with what you need. And so my question for you today is, do you believe that? Now, most of us would probably say yes to that answer. But I think it's easy for us, because most of us have a lot, to look towards money and possessions to provide security in our life. Even if we say we we serve God and love him, I think a lot of times money is our backup plan and an indicator that we may not um, picture God as a generous heavenly father is if we spend a lot of time worrying about money. In fact, uh, a couple of years ago, I heard about the concept of a scarcity mindset and a scarcity mindset is when you're so obsessed with the lack of something, usually money or time, that you can't seem to focus on anything else no matter how hard you try. And I think some of us have a scarcity mindset. We don't trust that God is a heavenly father who will bless us with what we need. But Jesus reminds us that God is a generous father. He cares for you and he'll give you what you need. And so if we serve a generous God, then our lives should reflect that. We should increasingly have a generous faith and we should increasingly become generous people. And that's why Jesus continues as he's teaching his disciples. He says this in verse 31. He says, seek the kingdom of God above all else, and he'll give you everything you need. So don't be afraid, little flock, for it gives your father great happiness to give you the kingdom. You see, God wants us to give, he wants to give us something that's more valuable than money, a life of blessing and peace enjoy in the kingdom of God. And when we seek him first, he promises to give us everything we need, not necessarily everything we want. And then Jesus tells his disciples the investment strategy that can't fail. He says, sell your possessions and give to those in need. This will store up treasure for you in heaven, and the purses of heaven never get old or develop 
holes. Your treasure will be safe. No thief can steal it and no moth can destroy it. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. So Jesus teaches them two ideas here. The first idea is that kingdom investments always pay off. You know, I think most of us, when we're looking at our money, we're always looking at the best investment possible. And Jesus describes the safest possible investment ever with the best possible rate of return. When we invest our resources into meeting kingdom needs, it will pay off. And Jesus isn't just talking about financial needs here. He's talking about investing and, and reaching and caring for spiritual and relational needs. And when Jesus is talking about um, uh, purses of heaven, he's not just talking an investment that will pay off in the next life. He's talking about investments that will pay off in this life. In Mark chapter 10, verse 29, Jesus said this to his disciples. He says, you will receive now in return hundreds as many houses and brothers and sisters and children and property and in the world to come eternal life. You see, Jesus taught a prosperity gospel, but not a financial prosperity gospel. You will be blessed if you trust in what Jesus has for you. Sometimes, though, it's not a financial blessing. So a kingdom investment always pays off. And secondly, he wanted his disciples to know that our hearts follow our treasure. And let's face it, as Americans, we have a lot of stuff. We have a lot of possessions. Uh, my wife sent me a stat this week that was a little astounding. There are 53,000 storage facilities in the United States. That's more than the location combined of Subway, KFC, Pizza Hut, Taco Bell, and Target. That's a lot of storage. We have so much stuff that we can't contain it in our houses. We've got to buy places to store it. And so if Jesus asked us and said, where is your heart? The answer might be it's in a storage facility. Um, and if we scroll through our bank accounts, our Venmo accounts, our financial statements at the end of the year, what would it tell us about where our hearts are at? You see, Jesus offers us a new kind of life, a kingdom life, but it's easy to hold on to things that really don't bring us life or security or significance. So we need to find a way to redirect our hearts if our treasure, if our hearts follow our treasure. You see, giving is a way to be able to redirect our hearts. In fact, giving is an act of a defiance that helps release the hold that money has on us. In fact, that's why I believe that Jesus said to the rich young ruler, the rich young ruler was a man that came to Jesus and he wanted to follow him. And Jesus looked at the man and it says he loved him. And then he said to him, go sell everything you have and then come follow me. And the man went away sad because I believe that the money had a grip on his life and Jesus knew that he needed to release that grip. That's why Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 24. He says, no one can serve two masters for you will hate the one and love the other. You will be in, devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. You know, if we are followers of Jesus, following Jesus won't just cost us our money. It'll cost you your life. 
But what you get in return will be worth far more than anything you give up. This is an investment that can't lose. Now, I had a couple from our congregation that shared um, their story in this regard and their journey with trusting God with their resources. Their names are Matt and Angie, and this was written by Angie. And I thought this was a beautiful illustration of learning to trust God with our resources. And so I want to read you their story. Angie says this, My husband and I both grew up in the church, and early on in our marriage, we made sure to do the right thing by giving some of our money to the church. But I can see now that it was initially from a place of duty. When Grace Fishers first launched, I remember a sermon on treasure and giving our first fruits to God. And it was the first time that I'd realized that I needed an overhaul on my view of finances and giving. I'd been giving what I'd viewed as mine, and a shift happened where I realized everything was actually God's. And so to give was a privilege because he had so graciously entrusted to us what we had. I remember the sermon using a verse from Malachi, and I remember this because I was pregnant with our third, and I had strongly considered naming him Malachi based on this message. And the verse was Malachi 3.10. says, bring all the tithes into the storehouses so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, said the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great that you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it and put me to the test. After hearing this verse, I wouldn't say I made a bargain with God, but the verse does say put me to the test. So we increased our giving to 10% of our income. And I asked God to show me that he's the one that will provide. With a month after increasing our giving, my husband received a bonus and a raise. He's a teacher, and it was an absolutely bizarre time of year for this to happen. But it was enough to make up the difference of the increase in our tithe plus some. Our financial love story with God doesn't end there, though. But it was the first glimpse into being able to truly trust how he would lead us. A few years later, my husband and I were discussing whether I should cut down on hours at work. But the budget number said I needed to stay. And then in the closest that I've been to audibly hearing God, he said straight to my heart, trust me. I knew he was calling me to cut my hours. I remember feeling afraid to have less income but thinking, I can't hear the voice of God and let money be the master. I had no idea that that step of obedience would have as many cascading effects as it did. It allowed me to join a Bible study that deepened my faith with him and increased my contentment of life without the need for more to produce that joy. And despite my decrease in pay, we continued to have enough financially. Fast forward five years. I felt strongly I was to quit altogether. It was a journey to get there, but I did it, and we trusted him yet again with our finances. Within a month of that, my husband won a teaching grant that ended up paying for our family of five to be able to travel with him while he fulfilled his grant. For my husband and I, who loved to travel, this was very much a God-opening-the-windows-of-heaven moment. And after being off for over a year, he called us to trust him financially again, as I had the opportunity to start a business that aligned with everything that he has prepared me to do. But it took a significant investment of our savings. And again, more wrestling, 
but we finally said yes. And now I can say God has blessed us, has absolutely blessed that financial obedience as well in multiple ways. Now, I'm not sharing anything to sound like it's a prosperity gospel, but I absolutely believe that our finances are the Lord's first and that we can trust him in how he leads. My husband and I's story has been sometimes giving more, sometimes it's in making less, sometimes it's in spending more, but we've tried to approach it all with palms up, letting God guide us. Sometimes the result has been an even bigger financial blessing But every time, it's been realizing that taking a step to walk the path that he has for us is the biggest blessing of all. We can trust what he's calling us to do with our finances because he knows the big picture. It's his to begin with. And as we do, the windows of heaven open. I love that story of even the title of a financial love story with God. So how do we live a generous life practically? And I I was thinking about what's the best way to paint a picture of how you go through this journey. And I remembered back to a series that we did at the beginning of January. It was actually one of my favorite series that we've done. It's one that the teaching team has heard a lot about, and it was titled Breathing Room. Now, Breathing Room is the space between our current pace and our limits, and this applies to our time, It applies to our money. It applies to lots of things in our life. And one of the things that seems to happen to all of us is as we we go through life, even if we get a little margin, everything, that margin tends to get squeezed out. And there was this picture of uh, that showed as we make increasingly more out of our life, you would think that we would spend if our, you know, even if our cost of living just slowly increased, we would have more breathing room. And for most of us, that's not the case. And so we have to be intentional about creating breathing room. And so we gave you these five practical steps to work through. Well, those same five steps work to create a financially generous life. And by the way, sometimes creating breathing room can help us have more space to be generous, to be more generous. But I think the reverse is true. When we're financially generous, it can create more breathing room as we learn to be content and to live with less. Now, I'm giving you these five steps, but here's what I want you to encourage you to do. Have these conversations with your spouse if you're married and include your kids. You don't know how many people I've talked to over the last couple of weeks who talked about how the conversations that they had with their parents and the way they saw their parents being generous and wrestle with being generous and how they saw their parents being generous through church, how that impacted and grew generosity in them. So families, don't, don't exclude your kids from these conversations. But the first step is simply to decide. And that's what this whole first part of the message has been about. Do we believe that we serve a generous God? And am I will, really willing to trust him with what I have? That's where it all begins. And then I think the next step is to set a goal. And this is true if you're trying to, you know, create breathing room or if you're trying to um, create a generous life, um, if you're trying to give more. Now, there's two types of giving that are highlighted in the scriptures. Uh, The first is called proportional giving. And this is what uh, Angie and her story referred to as a tithe, or sometimes you hear it called tithing. 
but the tithe literally means a tenth. Now, that's what the Jews were called to do, and so there's a lot of discussions that happen around tithe. Are we required to give a tithe like they did? And I think you need to be a little careful of saying, well, this is what God required in the Old Testament because the Jews actually gave multiple tithes, tithe, and some people um, estimate that they actually gave 23% of their income because there were multiple tithes to enable worship and to care for the poor. But if you're trying to create a proportion, a giving goal, 10% is a great place to start. It's a great place to have a goal to work towards. And this is in the New Testament. It's reflected in Paul's um, communication to the church at Corinth when he said, give in proportion to what you have. So when God blesses you with more, we're called to give more. And that's the first kind of giving. And that's supposed to be a practice as a follower of Jesus throughout our life. But there's a second type of giving that's talked about periodically in the scriptures, and that's called sacrificial giving, over and above giving. And we see this in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, and as the people were, had left Egypt and as they were building their first place of worship, Moses calls the people, based on God's instruction, to give as God moved their hearts to the construction of this temple. And we also see a similar idea as special needs arise when Paul, the apostle, as he worked with a variety of churches and a special need would come up, uh, if there was a famine in an area or a special need, he would ask other churches to contribute and help make a difference in the need that arose. So two types of giving that we need to think about and explore proportional giving and sacrificial giving and so you should have a goal that talks about how what's my giving goal and then the third step is that we need to know where our money is going and we need to know where all of it's going our spending our saving and our giving you know there's a lot of convenience in credit cards and electronic payments but I think one of the biggest challenges it's easy to have that money go out of our wallets and not have any idea where it's going or the impact that it's having. And so one of the things that I think is important to do is look through and see where my spending is going and see where my giving is going. And something that Susie and I do periodically is we'll try to actually assess where our generosity is at. Do you know how much of your uh, what your income is going to bless and be generous to others. We'll actually calculate the percentage and see if we're growing in generosity. And one other tip as you're thinking about this that I got from Ron Blue, it says when we use money, we're investing it, not spending it. And if we look at every expenditure as an investment, what are you getting in return for that investment? And then step four is to create a balanced budget. And this is where we define, <clears throat> okay, if I know where my money's going and I've defined my priorities, this is where you align your priorities with your income and your spending. And there's a lot of ways to align those things. One of the easiest, well, maybe not easiest, but one of the ways is to cut spending of things of lower priority. If we begin to evaluate like how many times we go to Starbucks in a month or eat out or streaming subscriptions is another thing that I think is easy to just kind of tack on and they just keep billing month after month after month and it's easy to spend money on things like that that don't yield a great, um, that don't yield a great return. 
And so we need to work towards reducing spending. And there's also ways you could begin to increase your giving. But balance your income and your spending and what you seek to give. And then lastly, when you're trying to become a generous person, you want to focus on working with a partner of, or a mentor. If you've got a financial advisor, this would be a great person to have a conversation with because they can help you think about ways that you can do that creatively. And actually, we're hosting a seminar. Some of uh, our folks from Grace Fishers, Elaine Hokum, uh, and others are going to be hosting uh, a seminar called Creative Generosity on November 6th at 7 p.m. And this is a way that you can figure out how to maximize your giving using the resources that you have. He's going to talk about ideas as a business owner and answer questions, ways that you can give through your, bene- um, through your business. He's going to talk about creative ways that you can generously maximize your giving. Now, I'm going to turn the corner at this point and get very specific as we talk about the REACH initiative. So if you're a guest or if you're somebody listening online and you're a guest, you're welcome to listen in, but I'm not speaking to you. But as a church, we want to be a place where people that are looking for hope and healing, um, we want to be available to them like we did, as Paul Thompson shared his story last week. But reaching our community is going to require all of who we are, including our financial resources. And so our proportional giving, we talked about those two types of giving. Proportional giving helps us operate as a church. And the good news as a church is that we have been incredibly blessed. Um, We have what we need to operate. We've got strong and healthy financial reserves And so God's people have been incredibly generous over the last few years as we've launched it as an independent congregation. So thank you for that. But we have a special need that's going to call us to sacrifice. When we launched as an independent congregation in 2021, um, we took over ownership of this beautiful land and this beautiful building, but we also took over the mortgage. And the mortgage debt has been manageable, but it's about a third of our operating budget. And the challenge comes uh, when our mortgage rate resets next September. And it's likely going to go up if you've been following anything that's been happening with interest rates. So part of the REACH initiative is preparing for the future of Grace Fishers by paying $2 million down on the mortgage principal over the next two years. And we're asking the congregation to consider over and above giving. And so in two weeks, November 12th, we're asking the congregation to make a relational commitment and a financial commitment related to REACH. And so here's what I'm asking you to do. If you're not currently giving to Grace Fishers and this is your church home, I want to encourage you to set a financial goal. What do you feel like God is asking you to give? Take a step, and maybe that goal should be 10%, but maybe you can't get there immediately, and so take a step. Maybe start with 1% of your income or 2% of your income. And if you're already giving generously, would you consider making a sacrificial gift? Now, I realize this is, I just went through all this really quickly, but as Josh said, there's two vision gatherings that get into a lot of details. It'll be a place for you to answer more questions. It's tonight at 6 and then Wednesday at 6.30, but reaching this goal will require all of us to consider what God is asking us to do. 
And it's not just about paying down mortgage debt. It's about uh, enabling our resources to be redirected towards paying interest and being directed into direct ministry in the time ahead. It's also about preparing this church for the future as we think about handing it off to the next generations. But the heart of why we're here and the heart of what we're trying to accomplish at Grace Fishers is reflected in stories like Mark Scholl's. And here's Mark's story as he shares about trusting God. And it's interesting, there's a financial moment that was a turning point for Mark. So here's Mark's story. My wife and I started coming to Grace um, about a year and a half ago. Uh, we'd moved to Indianapolis. Um, and my daughter lives here, so we you know, were doing the migratory grandparent thing to get close to them was here one day and then came back the next week. And well, I keep coming back to Grace for two or three reasons. Um, one would be just the people, that being the staff, sort of culturally like what we would be like, you know, uh, growing up in the Midwest. Tremendous group of teachers. Um, on Sunday, I always feel like I come away looking at something differently or learn something, you know. So um, I think the combination of all of that and then some of the people we've started to meet consequently here in the congregation, have really added to that, you know. It's just kind of made us feel, uh, just made us basically feel at home. Well, my faith journey has been one that probably started when I was, well, in my childhood. I uh, grew up in a farm family, you know, you went to church every Sunday. Felt like I was a pretty strong Christian at that time. Went to college, uh, got a job after college. Uh, then in, oh, about my early 30s, some um, misfortune happened to our family everything from my dad getting cancer to droughts in the mid 80s for farmers. And um, it really started to test, uh, test my mettle. There was a point in time when uh, it got bad enough, you know, at the bottom of the well type thing, uh, that I uh, sort of came to the epiphany or God opened my eyes and uh, I decided, you know, this isn't working this way, I give up, what do we do? And from there, uh, my life was quite different. Well, God kind of responded in multiple ways. Uh, at the beginning, it was uh, I became involved with a, a group called the Walk to Emmaus. And through that, I think one of the biggest things with that is I, when I went to that, I learned from that that uh, it's, everyone's got their journey. Everyone's got, you know, uh, things that they've gone through in life. And part of, you know, the, the ongoing trouble for me was I was always kind of like, well, you know, uh, so many around me are perfect. I'm the only one out here that's messed up. Of course, that was kind of self-centered in its own right. That walk kind of opened my eyes to, you know, that I'm not alone out here. And so when I begin to realize I'm not alone, then I begin to realize there's a lot of people that are going through the same thing. Just over time, I've met people, I've been involved with things, I've had opportunities, both not just business or, or personal always, but spiritually. Uh, and have met a lot of people in a lot of different places that really kind of maybe sometimes helped me and maybe sometimes talking them I might have helped them, but it really helped me in my journey. I spent too much of my life not having people that I walked with. And when I started to find those people through Emmaus Church, opening up my mind, and they saved me from a lot of pratfalls. I truly believe it was a prayer that was answered when I gave up one night, I told God, I don't 
know what to do. And here we are, and I think it's hard for especially young guys today with families to give it up and give it to God because sometimes you don't even have time to think about it, I don't think, you know? But that would be the one thing I would say is, you know, find a place, find people who have our Christian and spiritual mind that, you know, have thought and went through things and are going through things and you can share that. And the more that happens, the more you coalesce something that'll help you through those tough times. couple of final thoughts um, to just prepare us for what's coming up. The first is we've talked a lot about giving, but you might be in a place where you need some assistance. And so one of the things that we offer here at Grace Fishers is called a financial care appointment. We've got trained volunteers who would love to walk alongside you and help you figure out whatever financial challenge you're encountering. It's confidential. There's no cost to it. They would just love to walk alongside you and make you help you feel like you're not alone in whatever financial struggle that you're having. And they'll help connect you with other resources that can help bless and restore you. So if that's you, you can scan the QR code. There's also a link in the message notes. I would encourage you to check that out. The other thing on your way out today is you're going to receive a financial commitment card. And the reason that we're giving you this now is because, like I said, in two weeks we're going to invite the congregation to make a commitment. And as you look at the card, and I don't know, can you guys actually read this on the screen? Okay, good. I don't, it looks far away from here. But there's a couple of spots on the card. Um, the first top of the card is uh, a place to put a relational commitment. <clears throat> and that's the one that we've been talking to you about. We want you to write the name, the first name of your one in there. And again, if you're part of a family, you can turn in one card and write multiple names of who God is asking you to invest your life in. And if you're not sure who that one is, you can simply write a question mark, which just denotes that you're still praying and opening your heart and your mind to who God would show you. And then there's also a part where there's a financial commitment, and there's a couple of lines to this I want to highlight. The first line um, it, um, describes a little bit about how you might, <clears throat> excuse me, how you might give that goal. If you were going to give a lead gift, there's a little box to say, here's a one-time amount that I might want to give, uh, or I'm going to give weekly, and you can write that in there. But what we're most interested in is what is the total commitment you're willing to make over a two-year period, and this is above what you are currently giving, um, what, are you, what are you interested or what are you feeling like God is asking you to do to commit to the REACH initiative? Now, I want to be clear, this is a faith commitment. There's a little signature box on there, but this is not a contract. We're not going to come to your house and knock on your door. Um, uh, this is a faith commitment, and it's a step of trust that says, this is what I believe God is wanting me to do and what I believe uh, what he, I, he's asking me to do in terms of taking a step of faith. So the ushers will pass those cards out to you on your way out. And I just want to take a moment and pray for us as we wrap up today um, and just ask God to bless us as we pray and ponder over the next couple of weeks. Father God, I just thank you for the way that you have blessed us as your people over these last two years 
You have absolutely provided what we've needed. And I'm confident that you will continue to provide what we need in the days and weeks and months and years ahead. Help us continue to wrestle with the step that you're calling each one of us to take. Help us to continue to trust you and follow your lead in all parts of our life, not just our money, but our time and everything that you have blessed us and given us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, as you head out, two quick 